This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. He got me invested in some kind of fruit company. And so then I got a call from him saying we don't have to worry about money no more. And I said, that's good. One less thing. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. Hey there, money fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I can't tell you just how excited I am about today's show. All right, I I guess I just did. Anywho, we're doing some cleaning, and Joe's mom asked moi to clean the gutters. More on that later. But hey, speaking of gutters, let's talk about Bernie Madoff. Today we're talking to Diana Enriquez, the New York Times bestselling author of The Wizard of Lies, about Bernie Madoff and his scandal. You know, I don't know. I think that guy gets a bad rap, Joe. He seems like a straight shooter. All right, okay, fine, I'll stick to the script. Anyway, on today's show, millennials want to buy a house, but statistics, statistics, that's hard to say, statistics show that it's going to be an uphill battle saving for one. Joining us from Gen FKD to talk about it, we welcome David Grasso. We'll also share exciting money news ripped from the headlines, throw out the Haven Lifeline to a lucky listener, and of course, leave time for my amazing trivia. Yeah, you know that's right. And here they are, two guys who could really help a brother out with the chores around here. Joe and oh, j j j j g Chores. Yikes. Chores. Ooh, look at the time. We got a podcast to record. <sighs> Sorry, I'd like to help. This is this chores goes in the same category as diaper duty, which is retired from. <laughs> oh, really? Did you retire on top? Hey, I'd I'd like to thank all the little people. I'm not doing this anymore, Mrs. OG. 
Yeah, you know that story. Yeah, yeah everybody knows that story. Yeah, that's horrible. Hey, everybody, I am Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And what a great show today because we have a special guest across the microphone. It's this guy we call the other guy or OG. Not exactly a special guest. I mean, I am special, but you are. We we call you special here on the show. Diana Enriquez coming down to the basement. That's actually our special guest. How about that? New York Times. That's uh, a better guest. Yes, yes. New York Times writer and also the creator of this great book about Bernie Madoff that was turned into an HBO movie starring this little guy, uh, Robert De Niro. You familiar with him? Yes. Heard Mich- of him. Michelle Pfeffer. Is that how you pronounce that? Pfeffer? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, we've got her today. We've got a bunch of stuff. But you know what else we got? We have a fantastic sponsor because, of course, when you're looking for a better way to invest, you're going to go to M1 Finance. Because they've completely rethought, OG, how online brokerages should work to make investing enjoyable, convenient, and low cost. That's like the trifecta. Bam, bam, bam. The way it works is this. You build an investment portfolio by specifying what percentage of your money you want to go into certain investments. After a couple minutes, it takes to set up everything. You just deposit your money. It's that simple. As easy as a savings account. M1 automates all the buying and selling to put your money into your portfolio with the correct allocation and even uses fractional shares so that every penny gets put to work and it intelligently adapts how it directs the money based on market movements. With M1, it's super simple to have your money always invested exactly the way you want. No brainer to check out for anyone interested in investing because your first $1,000 in the platform is free and they charge 0.25% for all balances up to 100000 or only 015 if you're over $100,000. Do yourself a favor. Check it out on the web at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash M, the number one, finance.com, or download their Slick mobile app on iOS or Android. M1 Finance, be invested. We're getting invested in a little here. Stacking Benjamin's podcast. Diana Enrique is coming down to the basement in a second, talking about Bernie Madoff. But before that, the headlines. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamin's headlines. Great peace out. Last week from Morningstar, what happens to your HSA in retirement? I like this piece, OG. This one's written by Christine Benz. And the reason I like it is because we talk about all the time putting money in your 401k, putting money into an HSA. I like that piece of taking the money out, right? The other end of the stick. You put money in and you take it out. And in this piece, what they say is health savings accounts get plenty of attention in the financial media and in Washington, given all the hubbub. It may come as a surprise The assets in HSAs aren't all that impressive. Just $37 billion was stashed into the account at the end of 2016, according to HSA consultancy Devener. For a bit of perspective, that's about the size of a single largest mutual fund like the Fidelity Growth Company Fund. I'm surprised. I was going to say part of that is because HSAs are consumable, right? I mean- you put money in and take it out, put money in, take it out. Like it, it's there to help meet your annual out-of-pocket deductible. Well, it, it says, skipping down a little bit though, with that growth comes an increasing recognition that HSAs can be valuable components of individual savings toolkits, especially for those who can afford to pay their actual healthcare expenses out of pocket while leaving their health savings account assets in place to grow. I mean, this is this is a big thing. In fact, they're saying in this piece, and I wanted to see if you agree, leave your HSA alone as long as possible because of the fact that it can grow tax-free and becomes less of a skid, a tax skid, during your retirement years. Well, that's like saying, should I save more money if I have extra money or should I throw it out the window? 
Yeah, but there's no on the highway. There's no requirement of distribution. Right. And it grows tax free. So if I'm looking right. at putting money in And there's no health requirement to use it once you're past sixty five. Right. So if I'm using this money after retirement age, I'm thinking about using money out of my traditional first, maybe up to a tax bracket line, then take money out of the Roth next. And HSA is money on top. They'll fix that, right? Don't you think? Eventually. <laughs> 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 it's a huge loophole right now, though. It's a huge yeah. loophole. It's fantastic. No, I agree. I mean, sure. Obviously, if you can save more money into your accounts, whether that's HSA or otherwise, and if you can pay the money out of pocket, why wouldn't you? If I have yeah. a choice putting more money into my Roth versus putting more money into my HSA, but I can't do both, which one do you like first? Mm, good question. I like the Roth first because it's tax-free coming out, too. Or what the uh, but so beneficiary is rules are on HSAs. I haven't thought about that yet. This is all new stuff, right? We get to think about. Because Roths are tax-free when you take the money out, right? Gross tax-free, take the money out tax-free. But if you leave it to somebody, they have to start taking money out right away. Now, they don't pay taxes on it, but they still have to start taking money out of it a certain, certain amount. I wonder what HSA rules are in terms of distributions to heirs. But nevertheless, tax-free money trumps everything. If an investor is earmarking HSA assets for retirement, those assets can be managed in line with other retirement assets. The longer the time horizon until spending, the more aggressively positioned those assets should be. But as retirement draws near, it makes sense to think about a liquidation strategy for the accounts based on anticipated healthcare spending needs. It says to project spending, it's helpful to review which expenses qualify for tax-free withdrawals. Importantly, premiums for a Medicare supplemental policy don't qualify as a tax-free withdrawal. That's a point I wanted to make. Hmm. So you can't take money out to pay premiums. Though Medicare insurance premiums for Part B, C, and D, long-term care insurance premiums up to the IRS limits and out-of-pocket pharmaceutical costs, among others, would be eligible. So the answer is... As long as the healthcare expense is still tax-free, but there's no penalty to right. take it out for whatever other reason. Actual Medicare Part B, C, and D count, but Medicare supplement doesn't count. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then armed with an estimate of annual healthcare spending needs, a retiree can then position the assets in the account. And of course, they say that the bucket approach, which people talk about uh, a lot on this show about love the bucket approach, hate the bucket approach. Bucket approach sucks. Bucket approach is awesome. But it says the bucket approach ports over nicely to an HSA spending plan. I have no qualms with any of the buckets. I just need bigger buckets. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care how the water is flowing. I just want lots more of it. Give me a bigger bucket, Martha. We need a bigger bucket. Well, in our second headline, the National Association of Realtors has said that first-time real estate buyers have moved into the millennial sweet spot. Can you believe that? But will they actually have enough money to buy a house? Gen FKD, a millennial financial literacy organization, published their first annual millennial money survey recently. And here to talk about it with us is David Grasso from Gen FKD. Welcome to my dad's shortwave, David. Hey, how you doing? You'll find some millennials in that basement, I'm sure. Absolutely. <laughs> from time to time, we do. Well, let's talk about this. Your financial literacy survey, the millennial money survey, 94% of people said they wanted to own a house in the future. That's not a surprise, is it? Yeah, what a surprise. We want to own land. Isn't that kind of integral to the American dream, owning land? That's primarily the reason why many of our ancestors wandered over to this strange continent was to own land. 
And of course, our generation is no different than past generations in that department. Sure. And another stat, 76% say they'd rather live in the suburbs compared to the cities. That kind of surprised me because I've read a lot of studies, David, that show that millennials especially like being within walking distance of things, like a sense of community. Why do you think we're talking about the suburbs now instead of downtown? I think because the idea of the suburbs has changed, and obviously we were surprised by these results as well, considering we're all very urban millennials. A lot of us live in New York City or spend a lot of time here. I think the idea of a suburb has changed. A lot of times people want to live in a smart suburb where they can walk to a downtown of sorts, but not necessarily a downtown with skyscrapers. So I don't think that your mom and dad's suburb is really the suburb of the future. And that's why we feel that statistic was captured in that way. Gotcha. So let's talk about this. In your study, you think millennials are ready to own the property of the land that they so much desire? I think they are. And I think they're willing to move to areas that are more affordable as well. And that's also why you see more people willing to move to the suburbs or that they'd rather live in the suburbs. Part of that is, you know, a lot of us have are acutely aware that we can't afford to live in cities, you know, New York City and San Francisco being prime examples of that phenomenon. But even other cities like Miami or Los Angeles, you know, these are places where millennials just we have a sneaking suspicion that we can't afford to live there and we'll eventually have to end up elsewhere. Gotcha. So that's the reason for the suburbs. Some of the findings that you guys had shows that millennials really have an uphill battle. Let's go over some of these. One in five are unemployed or unable to find a full-time job. They anticipate having an average of nine, nine jobs over the course of their career. 45% work in a position requiring a degree, but 40% said their college degree didn't help them find work. It seems like an uphill battle for millennials, David. Just walking down Park Avenue here in New York today, I heard a millennial talking to a debt collector. I mean, we don't have it easy. We went to our education is a lot more expensive than past generations. Our salaries are a lot lower. And if you don't hop around, you probably won't get a huge raise. And we have higher levels of debt. And housing is a lot more expensive. So it's a triple whammy there. And it gets you in every direction. There's a lot of research that shows that our generation doesn't have it as easy as our parents did. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I look at these findings and it's pretty ugly. Wait, you guys are a financial literacy organization, so I love that you made all these statistics public. But what do millennials do with this, David? What do you think? Somebody hears the statistics that it's going to be an uphill battle. What's their next step? You know, our message for people is always to be prepared for the new economy. There's a way to avoid a lot of economic strife, and that is studying or acquiring the skills that are needed in the 21st century economy. You know, and that's really the gospel that we try to spread. There are many, many dying industries, and unfortunately, journalism is one of them for me. But for the rest of us, you know, you can study technology, coding, etc. These are skills that are in high demand, and employers are desperate for them. So if you study the right thing, when you graduate, people will be knocking down your door to offer you a job. And that's what the message we're trying to say, especially to young people. And even if you went to school and got the wrong type of degree, it's never too late for retraining. I think that's a great place to leave it. Let's talk about you guys for a second, because I love your mission. Tell everybody a little bit about what you're doing there at Gen FKD. So Gen FKD is dedicated to helping millennials prepare for the new digitally led economy. And what we try to do is give people a sense of financial literacy is important. But beyond that, positioning yourself to succeed in the new economy is critical because either you adapt or you get left behind. Awesome. David Grasso, thanks for hanging out with us for a few minutes. Likewise, your basement is very nice. (laughs) Thank you.
Thanks to David Grasso for coming down to the basement. It's it's hard saving for that first house, man. Yes, I remember when um, Mrs. OG and I, we had a uh, one of those thermometer things. We drew a <laughs> thermometer on a big white piece of paper and like colored it in you as we were not. trying to save money. You did not. And, uh, yes, we did. Yeah, I'll bring her in here and ask her. We sure did. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, good stuff. So I think the lesson there is, uh, save early and often for your new home and it's still going to be tough, but, but number two, and a big important lesson, don't just think about whether it's your HSA, your 401k, your IRA, how you're putting money in, start thinking early about what your strategy is, especially if you're one of these financial independence, retire early people think early and often about how you're going to actually take the money out. Diana Enriquez going to walk over to the shortwave and talk to Diana. Diana started working with the New York Times in 1989. She is a Pulitzer finalist for a series of articles beginning in July 2004 that exposed the financial exploitation of young soldiers by insurance and investment companies. We've talked Ooh, about some of that. I remember that, that story. That, that actually led me to doing uh, pro bono uh work for the Department of Defense. Well, they started a whole they started a whole program off of that. It's funny the article spurred state regulatory action, congressional hearings, legislative changes, cash refunds for thousands of service members, the adoption mm-hmm. of more stringent Pentagon rules. That's all her. She's been the author of 3 books, Fidelity's World, The Secret Life and Public Power of the Mutual Fund Giant in 1995, The White Sharks of Wall Street, Thomas Mellon Evans and the Original Corporate Raiders in 2000, of course. The one we're talking about today, The Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff, and the Death of Trust, written in 2011, won numerous awards, but now picked up by HBO for four Emmy nominations this year. Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Casting, and Best Televised Movie or Limited Series. Uh, Diane Enriquez also is in the movie, and I'm sure we got to talk to her about that. Uh, because I think that's awesome. A cameo, huh? Yeah, when she gets a part in the, the thing that she created. I think you'd have to do that, right? Like, that would have to be part of the contract. And they're like, hey, uh, so we want to turn your story into a movie. You're like, I got to be in it. Well, let's find out. Diane Enriquez on my dead shortwave. And joining us on My Dad Shortwave, Diana Enriquez. Welcome. Glad you could join us. I'm happy to be there. Well, we have to start with the elephant in the room, Diana. The four, four Emmy nominations, outstanding television movie, outstanding lead actor in a limited series or movie, Robert De Niro, of course, outstanding supporting actress in a limited series or movie, Michelle Pfeiffer playing Ruth Madoff, outstanding casting for a limited movie or series. Where were you when you first heard about the Emmys? Oh my gosh, we were we knew they were going to be coming out and so I was glued to my computer screen um <laughs> watching the live stream and waiting for the PDF to be downloaded and then of course a flurry of emails out in all directions Ellen Chenoweth who did the casting for the Wizard of Lies uh, and I have you've already made you know celebratory cocktail uh, appointments <laughs> and uh, a lovely note from Bob and a lovely note from the people at HBO so back and forth so it's just been uh very exciting. And, you know, I don't feel like any of this is recognition for me. I'm just in awe of the talent that brought this movie out. I mean, I'm a little bit of a bystander in the Emmys process. I mean, there there isn't an Emmy for 
best uh, retired journalist playing herself in an adaptation of her book. <laughs> I was going to ask you that. Where was that Emmy for your role? I in know, that? I'd be a shoe in for that. I would be a shoe in for that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> when did you first become interested in the Bernie Madoff story? Well, I had actually known Bernie for decades before his arrest as a markets reporter for the New York Times. He had played a role in a couple of kind of inside baseball, Wall Street plumbing kind of stories that I had done back in the 90s. And I'd gotten to know him and his brother and his firm in covering those events. Even earlier than that, though, when I was a writer, a staff writer for Barron's Magazine, Bernie had pioneered after-hours trading. I mean, back in the day, I know it's hard to imagine in this day and age when we expect to be able to look up our stock portfolio on our cell phone at all hours of the morning. Uh, but there was a time when, you know, stock trading stopped at 4.30 in the afternoon, I mean, uh, or even earlier in the earlier days. And um, if you wanted to know how some big news event was affecting specific stocks or specific markets, you know, there was no way to find out. You could, uh, there was just no way to guess. Well, Bernie and a couple of other small firms pioneered the idea of trading New York Stock Exchange stocks through the night when the big board was closed. And so they were trading in other time zones, obviously. And as a financial reporter, I would call their trading desk. And, you know, so when the first Gulf War broke out, you know, what, it, what, it, what was that doing to oil stocks? Well, it was 7.30 at night in New York. Who are you going to call? You're going to call Madoff. So I knew him in his Dr. Jekyll persona. Obviously, I had no clue that there was a Mr. Hyde running a Ponzi scheme in the background, but I knew him from that background. And so the day that I saw that he'd been arrested, an alert from um, one of the newswires came in to my email inbox, and I saw that he had been arrested, I immediately twig that it was going to be a big story because while he wasn't a big retail investor name, I mean, nobody outside of, you know, the trading desks of Wall Street would have ever heard of him. He was a big deal with the trading desks of Wall Street, with the regulatory community. And I was, because of these older stories decades earlier, uh, I was old enough to remember who he was. So I saw the headline, rushed up to my editor at the time and said, I think this is going to be a big story because of who this guy is. All we knew then was securities fraud. It could have been anything from trivial to gigantic, as it turned out to be titanic, really. So I quickly briefed him on who the guy was, and he said, well, go for it. So I wrote our first day story, and as you probably know, the first byline, new news starts to roll towards that reporter as the story starts to unfold. And so uh, with enormous support and help from four dozen New York Times colleagues, I became the lead Times reporter covering uh, the unfolding scandal. And um, very soon, I just knew that this was a book I had to do. I mean, really, by nightfall of the day he was arrested, you we co- knew he had been turned in by his sons, which means either they, they were his accomplices. I mean, no one knew at that point yet. Either they were his accomplices and had turned on him, or they were innocent and had turned him in. And either way, it was Shakespearean. Yeah, you know, it's a it monster. didn't matter what the answer right. was. It was so, so I was hooked and wanted to do the book, and, and the rest is history, I guess. Well, you called it a Ponzi scheme, and everybody listening, I'm sure, has heard that term before. But you know where that where does that name come from, Diana? Do you know? Yes, actually. Uh, Carlo Ponzi, who was a, 
a criminally entrepreneurial Italian immigrant in Boston in 1920, undertook a highly publicized fraud that basically involved robbing Peter to pay Paul. His cover story was that he was using international postal certificates. Don't ask. You don't need to know that. <laughs> but he was using this, this form of international postage and allegedly was able to um, buy them in one market, sell them in another at a great profit. And so he was collecting investors like crazy, and the whole thing blew up. But what you need to notice there is he didn't invent this kind of fraud. It had been around for more than a century, and it was called a Peter to Paul scheme before he so flamboyantly put his stamp on it and made it his signature crime and it had been it was called a ponzi scheme ever since i kind of wondered whether in the aftermath of madoff it would come to be called a madoff scheme because he importantly changed the traditional definition of a ponzi scheme or the traditional uh, red flags of a ponzi scheme at the end of the trailer even just listening to you talk about this diana Madoff talks about perpetrating this myth for 16 years right at the end of the trailer. And he talks about how he makes it sound like it's amazing that he maintained his sanity, which sounded suspiciously a little like he feels sorry for himself. And also that he's he's kind of bragging a little about being able to pull it off for so long. Did you get that sense from him when you met him? Absolutely. In fact, there was one uh, encounter, uh, one real life encounter with the real Bernie Madoff that wasn't in the film. As I was interviewing him the first time in prison in August of 2010, you know, as, as an author, I was looking for those telling moments, you know, that you could create a scene in the book. So I asked him, tell me about that moment when you realized for the first time that this fraud was going to fail, that your Ponzi scheme was falling apart. When did that dawn on you and how did you feel and where were you? Well, he, quick as a wink, said it didn't fail. <laughs> you know, we're here in prison, Bernie. Um, no, no, he said it didn't fail, and he insisted that there were lots of bold-faced names who still wanted to invest with him, that he could have continued to raise money. He could have weathered the storm. He could have gotten through it. No, 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 it didn't fail. He had just gotten tired of the whole tap dance and decided to quit. That it so intrigued me. I started to pull that string in conversations with him and in conversations, interviews with other people who knew him. And, I mean, the fact is that Bernie cannot admit being a failure at anything. And so the fact that he was the architect of the biggest Ponzi scheme in history, I'm sure he sees as, you know, yet another success story. <laughs> wow. And he had to sign off on you talking to him when he's in prison, right? He had to agree to see me, yes, but but then so did the prison authorities have to agree to let him see me. So there was a couple of months of uh, of negotiations. I got to imagine there were tons. I mean, just everybody wanted to talk to him after that. How did he decide to talk to you? Well, he alone knows that. Looking at it from my side of the table, I knew his attorney very well. His attorney had represented a number of other white-collar criminals that I'd found myself writing about, or in a few cases, exposing and we had you know, had a respectful professional relationship over the years. And also, I wondered in hindsight whether the fact that alone, of, almost alone of all the people covering the Madoff scandal, which was, as you know, Joe, worldwide. I mean, it was, uh, it was amazing. The day he was sentenced, I left the 
courthouse and heard like six different languages of people chattering their stories into their cell phones. So it was a global story, but almost alone of everybody covering it. I knew that Bernie Madoff, he was proud of being. You know, I didn't just know the crook. Right. I had known the Bernie Madoff Wall Street statesman. And he knew that I'd covered him back in those days. And I've wondered if that didn't tip the scale a little bit in my favor, that I was prepared in telling his story to include that part of his life of which he was, I think, justifiably proud. I mean, he was, in fact, a Wall Street pioneer. Sure. He was you know, one of the fathers of the modern NASDAQ market. He ironically helped shape the rule book of the NASDAQ market. And when the NASDAQ market was caught in an enormous price-fixing scandal in the mid-1990s, his firm was almost the only one not involved, the only one whose hands were clean in that scandal. So there was a Dr. Jekyll in this Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde story, and I persuaded him that I was prepared to include that part of his story. That may have been what tipped the scale, but it, you know, truly in my worst nightmares, I worry that you know he, he decided to talk to me because he thought I was the most gullible of the people on <laughs> offer. I don't know. <laughs> you hope not, right? Yeah. I hope not. Yeah. Well, well, I've, I have so many questions to ask you, but I'm looking at the time and I, and I want to talk about the film for a minute because yeah. after only three days after its release, it was the best performing HBO movie in four years, total audience over $2.4 million, but bigger yet, I want to talk about you being in the film. How much acting had you done prior to the film? Oh, I had had extensive experience, Joe. I had played the lead in my eighth grade school play. <laughs> Well, there you go. You just there you go. I'm 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 sure you just told them that, and they said, "Okay, well, you're good." Oh, sure. Uh, you know, it was it was an astonishing development. I mean, and utterly unlooked for. I mean, my my character didn't show up in the script until several revisions in, and then when she did show up, you know, there was all the fun dinner table speculation about who would play me in the movie, and so when the call came initially from Tribeca, to ask whether I would consider auditioning to play myself. I was absolutely stunned and convinced, really, that this was never going to happen. Of course, I would go down to New York for a screen <laughs> test. I was up in Vermont at the time. Of course, I would go through the motions, but no one in their right mind was going to put you know, a 60-something journalist, 60-something-year-old journalist in this multi-million dollar movie with Robert De Niro and Michelle Pfeiffer. I mean, it just made no sense. So I did the audition for director Barry Levinson and, uh, and Ellen uh, Genowith and um, got the coveted call back. I was asked to come in and read the scene again with uh, Bob himself. And I got the part and no one was more astonished than I was. It was just an extraordinary experience. How intimidating is that to sit across from Robert De Niro with everything that he's done? And you're, you're, I, I can't imagine that, Diana. I think I would, I, the second I'm, I walk into the room, I'm sweating. Uh, no, you know, here's the great thing. First of all, he's an incredibly sweet and generous person. So most of my terrors were in the preamble to actually sitting down across the table, you know, get, get all of the unfamiliar preliminary work that you go through before you actually get to that scene. 
I had no idea what I was doing. I, you know, dealing with the wardrobe people, the makeup people, the hair people, the whole deal. It was just remarkable and brand new experience for me. And he was unfailingly generous and kind. That's so When I actually sat down for the scene, he was so totally Bernie. My mind wasn't screaming at me, you're sitting across the table from Bob De Niro. It was saying, well, there's Bernie Madoff, and here am I interviewing Bernie Madoff, which I have done before. This is what I do. I'm a reporter. So it actually was less terrifying in the reality than it was in the, in the anticipation. Wow. I mean, of course, Robert De Niro is a phenomenal actor, but just that he brought you back there in a few minutes, and I'm sure that made you a ton more comfortable. The movie is The Wizard of Lies. It's available on digital download now and will be available on Blu-ray and DVD October 3rd. Also, of course, the book, The Wizard of Lies, which goes deeply into everything about the Madoff scandal, the Madoff family, about what exactly happened. That's available at bookstores everywhere. I I just have one more question for you, Diana, before we let you go, which is you're so enveloped in this. What are the big lessons that the average investor takes away from this? Because it seems like it would have been so difficult to know that he was scamming you. I hope that what people will see, both in the book and in the movie, is how wrong we are about what we think we know about Ponzi schemes and Ponzi schemers. We think we're going to see them coming. We think we're going to recognize their outlandish promises and their bigger-than-life personalities. The fact is, the most successful, the most masterful of these con men are like Bernie Madoff. They are admirable, trustworthy, and incredibly normal. And that's what people need to take away from this. They need to have some rules for how they invest that do not rely on simply trusting this admired and and apparently trustworthy figure. So I think Bob De Niro's portrayal and what I tried to do in the book itself is to offer up that lesson. People were not crazy to trust Bernie Madoff. You'd have been crazy if you didn't trust Bernie Madoff. And that's the lesson you need to take away, that your gut is going to betray you when one of these trusted criminals decides to rip you off. So that's the basic bottom line of a Ponzi scheme. Trust is all a Ponzi schemer needs, trust in a bank account. That's all he needs to rip you off. And so you need to, you need to be sure that you're only dealing with well-regulated, thoroughly understood investments. What's up, trivia fans? I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and today, because it's a small, small world down here in the basement, let's bring you a bit of Disney-related trivia. Here's your question. On today's date in 1995, Disney made a very special purchase. What did they buy? I'll give you a hint. It was a TV network. I'll be back with a thrilling answer as soon as I take out the trash. You know, down here in the basement, we only like to partner with companies we're proud to put our name behind. So we're excited to announce our newest sponsor for the Stacky Benjamin Show, M1 Finance. Recently sat down with Brian Barnes, CEO and founder, and asked him what makes M1 Finance unique. M1 is one of the only automated investing platforms that allows you to customize the portfolio that you invest in. It creates a lot more engagement and fun in investing while still being easy and low cost. Anybody who's tried online investing tools or used to compromises 
Do you pick a traditional self-directed brokerage that hits you with commissions at every trade or an automated machine makes you hand over the reins? Don't compromise. Scratch out commissions at every turn. Take back control of your own portfolio and take advantage of the uniqueness that's M1 Finance. Takes minutes to sign up. Start by heading over to stackybedjamins.com forward slash M1 Finance. M1 Finance, be invested. Disclaimer, by the way, both Cheryl, my spouse, and I use M1 Finance. It works for us, but you need to do your own homework. Hey, sports fans, Joe's mom's neighbor Doug back downstairs with the answer to your trivia question. Here it was. On today's date in 1995, Disney made a huge purchase of a television network. Which one was it? If your spidey senses told you Marvel, you probably think you're as smart as Bruce Banner, but you'd be wrong. As wrong as Loki trying to challenge the Hulk to a fist fight. How dumb was that? The real answer? That would be ABC. In the second largest corporate takeover ever, the Walt Disney Company acquired Capital Cities slash ABC Inc. for 19 billion. That included ESPN and many other Cap Cities companies as well. And just think, you could have done it too if you had just skipped out on the avocado toast. See ya! Nice cheating. What? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Doug doesn't even start talking, and you're already hovering over his shoulder going, ABC, ABC. <laughs> like he's not even he's not even doing it yeah you remember that was a big deal that was a big yes. deal it was like a weird thing right it was like what the heck are they doing it seemed like it was out of the blue and now it makes so much sense like it was it was clearly the right move well when you own purchasing and distribution right yeah yeah you know, that's or gonna production be us on this show. And distribution i guess yeah we're in talks to buy apple i don't know if you knew that or maybe it's an apple down at the grocery <laughs> store <laughs> one or the other get a distribution of that Hey, let's throw out Dave and Lifeline and tackle some of life's or rather life insurance's most important questions. Our friends over at the Haven Life Insurance Agency, they've been spearheading innovation within the life insurance industry by focusing on those two things you value most. And what are those, OG? Cigars and whiskey. Or family and time. Could be an either or, couldn't it be? Maybe. Maybe not. And that's why they created a high quality and most importantly, affordable term life insurance policy issued by Mass Mutual. You can purchase entirely online. No need to wait several weeks for a decision when you can get one instantly with Haven Life. Head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a free quote and learn about life insurance the modern way. We're throwing this one out to uh, Conrad. Uh, say hello, Conrad. Hey, I just listened to your show uh, introducing Roofstock, and uh, it sounded like a very bad product where all the risk is on the buyer and they're still making a profit. There are a lot of issues with it as far as purchasing homes you've never seen before or rental properties you haven't seen before. And also they made the statement that um, you'd be proof against uh, or insured against uh downturns in the uh, rental market but it's not that the price that of rent would go down during a downturn in the real estate market but rather that the price of homes would go down and renters would flee or flock out to the good deals or bargains on real estate which is actually something that happened to me i actually had to sell my rental place at a very big loss during the last uh housing market crash so uh yeah, there you have it. They were just like, yeah, your rent's, you know, $1,300 a month and we can get a house for like 800 So 
goodbye. That's how that plays out. Anyway, otherwise, I like your show, but uh, Roofstock, I probably, I probably would have skipped. Uh, I not introduced them on the show. Thank you. Bye. Man, I'm so glad Conrad left that because this brings up a lot about investing and what investing is and what investing isn't, OG. Because I'm actually happy to say that we've done our due diligence on Roofstock and starting on Wednesday, Roofstock is sponsoring the show. And I and I couldn't be I couldn't be more excited about it because you know, you gotta go into OG, you gotta go into any investment with the right expectations. And Roofstock's job, which they'll be we'll be explaining a lot more over the next few weeks, Roofstock's job is not to guarantee that you're going to make money in real estate, it's to facilitate you owning a diversified collection of investments. And the fact, Conrad, that when you talk about, you know, your renter leaves or that you didn't do due diligence on your property, um Man, if you go into any investment with that expectation, imagine just throwing a dart at a mutual fund, OG. You can't do it. Like, you can't do it. You need to do your due diligence around your investments. Well, and everybody's personal investment style is different. You know, we talked about this last week on our 500th episode. We talked about what, you know, what did we learn? What was a common theme? And one of the things that is obvious to me is that there's no right way to become financially independent, right? Some people do it through individual stocks. Some people do it through closely held family businesses. Some people do it through, you know, liquidity events. Some people just do it through dollar cost averaging 500 bucks a month in their Roth, you know, and everybody's different. And your point is you've got to have, you know, you've got to do your own background and research and due diligence to say it the 7,000th time, I think in the last minute and a half. Yeah. The the reason I went to Roofstock to sponsor the show and I did go to them to sponsor the show was because of the fact that they make the process more simple. It's not that they're guaranteeing that you're going to make, I just, and, and Conrad, I'm not laughing at you. What I'm doing is kind of bemoaning a situation where an investor thinks that if you involve a third party in facilitating it to make it easier, that that somehow guarantees that you're going to be successful investing in anything, right? There are no guarantees. Death and taxes. Well, good point. Good point. So Benjamin, um, what's the guy that said that? The Benjamin guy? Benjamin uh, Disraeli. Franklin. Oh, Franklin. (laughs) (laughs) Swing and a miss. Oh, that bench. I've never heard of that, Benjamin. So I'm very happy that uh, Roofstock's coming on board. Can't wait to to uh, share more about. We'll learn more about them as we go. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait to share more because I'm uh, super excited about uh, that company and what they do. And I, I actually, I actually thought at first I thought, you know, I'm not going to play that that message from Conrad. But I think it is an important lesson, OG, about any type of investment. Imagine saying, you know, I bought this investment from Fidelity. Fidelity's still making money, even though I lost my ass in this mutual fund. It, isn't that the same thing? Kind of. Yep. Yeah. Or like a bond fund. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Psst. All right. Thanks for the thanks for the question, Conrad, or actually for the, I guess that wasn't a question, was it? It was a statement. Thanks for that. If you've got a question for the show and would like us to throw out the lifeline to you, head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash voicemail, and we are happy to cover it. We have a letter Doug brings down the mail, and today he brought it down from our new friend Amanda. Amanda says, two 401k questions. Does the 18,000 401k limit only apply to personal contributions or personal plus company match? 
Would an employer automatically stop contributions over the limit or would I need to self-manage that? Could I contribute over 18000 and actually get into trouble? I make 94500 base, have a variable bonus annually that also ends up resulting in 401k contribution, a 3% company match, and I'm trying to figure out what percentage to put in to maximize contributions without making a clerical error. Great question, and one that a lot of people wonder. A lot of people wonder this, OG. Where's very, that maximum? Th- yeah, this is really quite simple, and I think Amanda's going to be really happy with how simple the answer is here. So your contributions are your contributions. Company contributions are company contributions. Never the two shall mix. So your max is your max. The company has its max also, by the way. Your total contributions can't exceed a certain amount, but that number is in the 50,000 range, so you don't have to worry about hitting that. So you can put in your maximum number. Here's the other great thing. If you have a halfway decent record keeper, you know, a normal 401k company, they're going to stop you. So you put in whatever percent you want. You want to put in all $18,000 in the first uh, month of the year, have at it. If you want to uh, spread it out over the course of the year and you're worried about getting a dollar or two over, they'll stop you from doing it, generally speaking. And if they don't, they send you just a check. You know, they say, hey, you put $150 in too much last year. Here's a check back for the difference. No harm, no foul. Now, you can't leave it in there forever. If it goes past a tax year, then you end up with a little penalty and that sort of thing. But um, it's good to just double check that you did it right. But usually that double checks just quickly on your W-2. You know, when you get your tax form at the end of the year, it'll say line item D on uh, section 13 or 12, whichever one it is there, will say uh, employee contributions to retirement plans. But I like this quick uh, check with HR. And just do a quick check and say, hey, uh, will you guys stop me at 18000 And the answer 99% of the time is going to be yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, if it's a really small company, maybe they miss it. Maybe. But it's not even them. It's the record keeper. Yeah. You know, it's whoever the 401k is with, you know, Fidelity or whomever. I can't think of a time Uh, I've ever seen one missed. Have you? No. Like Roth IRA, I see that, you know, not all the time, but people, you know, get behind on. uh, Well, Roth IRAs, you can get into trouble if you put them in two different places. Right. right. If you have one at one at Vanguard and one at Fidelity, those two don't know that you've contributed at each place, you know. So well, and the income uh, restriction, people get a bonus at the end of the year they didn't expect, and now they got to take oh, some sure. money out. Yeah, yeah. yeah, all that. Yeah, so that happens. Thanks for the question, Amanda. You got a question, send it to the letter bag. Better yet, just go to stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail and uh, we'll get you on the Haven Lifeline. And we'll answer your question ASAP. We're going to do another letters episode to do a much better job of keeping up than we did earlier this spring. We are pretty on top of it right now. Very happy that um, we're able to help so many people answer some of their financial questions. Big thanks to everybody also who's left us a review of this here podcast. You know, it lets people know exactly what they're getting into. And uh, people have been nice lately. We've had a flurry of reviews and just love these. This one is from Natalie. Natalie says, I listen to this show regularly during my daily menial activities and highly recommend it. I found myself cracking up at times in addition to learning some things. Oh, Natalie learned something and didn't keep it to herself. Natalie, you got to stop that. It seems like they should grow up and get their own place rather than working out of Joe's mom's basement, though. Joking, assuming they're joking anyway. Natalie from WalletSage.com. We're not joking. Right. Thanks. Thanks, Natalie, uh, for that kind review. Mom's putting that on the fridge. And if you could leave us a review, too, that uh, helps people understand what the Stacking Benjamin Show is all about. 
Also, and last, if you're looking for good financial help in your corner, guess what? OG is there to help. He's taking clients. Head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash letter O and letter G if you want to find out what it takes to get OG helping you in your corner. All right. That's going to do it for today. We'll see everybody back here on Wednesday. we got a great show Wednesday. Check this out. Anna Davies made some organizational changes in her life, some that are really, really small, and found savings of, get this, $15,000 a year. She was able to find $15,000 a year just by making some simple changes. Anna Davies is our guest on Wednesday's show, plus... You know, the whole regular circus, OG. So we'll see everybody (laughs) back here on Wednesday. (laughs) Doug, what should we have learned today? Hey, Joe, can't run with the big dogs. Stay on the porch. I'll tell you what we really should have learned today. First, saving for a house. David Grasso from Gen FKD nailed it. You're going to have to put money away and work uphill, but the reward can be worth it. Second, take a lesson from the Wizard of Lies. Trusting your gut with your advisor don't if it sounds too good to be true and you've found a better deal than everyone else guess what it might just be too good to be true but the big lesson i just got an email from a guy who works out of a van you know so he can continually be where the action is he's smart who offered me a 30 percent return on a 500 dollars investment in racehorses racehorses that sounds like a sure thing doesn't it 30 percent return guaranteed question mark i think we should all do it don't you come on down with cash because he said they don't take credit or checks you know like every legitimate business special thanks to diana enriquez you can find her book the wizard of lies linked on our show notes at stackingbenjamins.com if you're anything like me and would rather watch it on screen, you can purchase The Wizard of Lies on digital download or wait until the Blu-ray and DVD comes out on October 3rd. Special thanks to David Grasso from Gen FKD for dropping by. You'll find a link on their study on millennials and homes on our show notes at stackingbenjamins.com. This show was created by Joe Saul Cihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Kathleen Selmans handles design, newsletter, and classroom opportunities. If you'd like to learn more, head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash classes. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. Shannon Cowan is our community manager and social media guru. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and there's a 73% chance that I played Chuck on Happy Days. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. When are all of you going to realize I'm the real talent on this show?
All right, I've seen a couple movies. There's one that a lot of people are talking about. And of course, because uh, we record ahead of time, we get uh, a little bit behind. So I want to get this one out there. The other one I saw, well, I'll save it for Wednesday, but uh, this is a little movie by this director, no-name director named Christopher Nolan called Dunkirk. Heard of that? The enemy tanks have stopped. Why? Why waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel? There are 400,000 men on this beach. Before the United States entered World War II, the German army pushed the French and British all the way onto the beach at Dunkirk. They were surrounded. And just like you heard uh, one of the actors in the movie there say, the tanks have stopped. They're no longer risking lives because they, they are fish in a barrel. Oh, gee, they're standing out in the open on the beach and they just keep sending in planes and artillery and just hammering the British forces. And in a very, very Famous, I guess it, it was so many years ago. Do you, do, do you tell what happened? I don't know. I don't know if you tell what, what, what happened. It is a, it is a grip. The story itself, even without the movie gripping story, amazing heroism, why there hasn't been a film about this yet. And maybe there has been, but not that I've seen, not one that was promoted to this degree is beyond me because this was, this was a huge event and it is it is a story well told from about four different perspectives. And Christopher Nolan likes to mess with time. So you realize about halfway through the movie that you're not getting the events in order, right? I mean, it seems like every Christopher Nolan movie I've seen, he's messed with the timing of events to kind of tell the story in a way to kind of keep you guessing. And halfway through the movie, you understand that the time has been messed with and that now we're, we're going forward, we're going backward, we're getting different points of view. What's cool is you see the same event sometimes from three different characters' points of view, and you suddenly realize how all these things kind of fit in together by the end of the movie. Still a few things that stick out that I don't understand. That's pretty typical for a Christopher Nolan movie where you go, you know, interstellar or what's the other one where, where everything's bending, the world's bending Batman. Yeah. yeah, Batman. Uh, probably not Batman, but yeah, actually what's funny. I mean, Christopher Nolan, Batman was amazing. Just gritty, heart wrenching. I got out. There's not a lot of uh, dialogue. He tells it mainly through the cinematography as opposed to yeah, you know, yeah, a the, lot of lot of dialogue. Well, well, there's dialogue, but the dialogue is not uh, pertaining to the narrative. It's all tactical. It's what's happening at the time, right? Mm-hmm. People talking about this thing that's happening right now, but nobody's. There's no exposition. You're right. There's no feelings. You're not. They're not telling you. The characters aren't telling you what they're feeling. They are doing it with cinematography. It is amazing. It's gut wrenching. I got done, and I was horrified and my stomach hurt. It was two hours in the edge of my seat. There were so many scenes where stuff was happening that I didn't want to have happen. You can't come away from this movie without being amazingly moved. I mean, you, you can't, I was this huge ball of emotion that I didn't want to be at the end of the movie, but you know what? 
I like that. I like that the movie took me where it was going to go, not where I wanted to go, but where it was going to go. And I felt it. Yeah, I mean, I really, really felt the way that I think the movie wanted me to feel at the end. And I can't say enough good stuff about Tom Hardy as an actor. Tom Hardy, one of the main people in the in the movie. And that dude, he plays so many different people. And just his ability with a few expressions for you to know exactly what he's thinking is phenomenal to me. I've always thought that Tom Hardy is a great actor and he proves it again here. Um, and he's not even, I mean, he is a main character, but there's several main characters. Mark Rylands in this movie, uh, uh, Kenneth Branagh's in this movie. I could go on and on, but um, uh, good, good, good. Yeah. Thumbs up, huh? Yeah. The thumb, thumb way up. Will I ever see it again? Probably not. Too intense. Yeah. Too intense. For it's me. like uh, Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. Yeah. Schindler's List. Watch it once. Yep. Glad I saw that. Shut that door. Probably not watching it again. Uh, but definitely an event. Uh, epic, epic film. Uh, gr- well told. So that's it. That's Dunkirk. You have 17 tabs open on your computer, don't you? Uh, I have no 67 tabs. <laughs> here it is. All right. Here we go. Well, Stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.